You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Arty Farty Podcast. Read and daydream. In this season, Creative Conversations, we talk to your favourite artists and authors to find out what inspires them. Creativity is the thing that changes the world. This talk was recorded to inspire you. If you keep doing enough bad things, you actually get a really good thing. Just don't be afraid of failure. Up next, Alan Bro. Alan Bro is a writer, comedian, broadcaster, musician and self-confessed music nerd. And I'm sure many of you will be familiar with Alan's work on the ABC music trivia show Spicks and Specs. Alan has written two books for kids, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies and Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches. And he is about to open a stage adaptation of Charlie and the War Against the Grannies, playing the title role of Charlie. Alan has called in for a chat about his career, creative process and adapting a book into a play. Thanks so much for joining us, Alan. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It's lovely to be here. I really am looking forward to diving deep into a lot of the different um, areas of your career and your life. Um, firstly, I just want to start with you've had a, really, a lot of really interesting jobs. Can you tell us how you've gone from comedian to broadcaster to music guru to author? Um, look, uh, by luck, I think, um, I haven't, I'm not really a planning sort of person, but basically what happened is I started as an actor when I was young, but I've always had an interest in all facets of the arts. And uh, I grew up in New Zealand and I started as a a full-time actor in New Zealand. And so in New Zealand, it is a small scene and one of the advantages of being a small scene is that you basically have to be able to do most things so if you're an actor you also need to be able to write things for yourself you know you need to be able to direct other people um you can i've done lighting i've done sound design i've built sets i've designed and built costumes you name it and a lot of that is simply because um i came from amateur theater initially and we did a lot of you had to do a lot of things and then when i started Working full-time as an actor, you need to do things, mainly to keep yourself busy, but also because people always need the help. Mm. Um, and so that doing that ethos of doing everything that's around and making a go of everything has extended into other facets of artistic endeavour, like uh, radio and uh, TV and film and writing music and writing books, etc. So it's... Um, I have a, a restless mind, which I think is inherent, but also encouraged by the way that I came up through um, the, the various artistic forms. So that's the best way of describing it. And do you think all of those things sort of you, not only do you get an appreciation of the work that's involved in other people's jobs, but they also really, they they feed into each of those where you can draw on your experience from lots of different things to, to be better at what you're doing? Yeah, very much so. I think that as a director, for instance, if you understand actors and you understand good scripts, you know, that, that, that ask the actors for action, for, you know, for movement, for emotion then you can, A, pick a good script and you can, B, direct it better. And as an actor, if you have an understanding of script and direction, you can work with the director better. And, you know, I think they do all feed into each other, an understanding of 
acting is is good for broadcasting because um, there's that whole thing of your senses being more heightened because you're only hearing the person's voice. And if if you are a performer, you can bring different things to that because you understand the way that you can use your voice and you can understand the emotion that you can transfer transfer through your voice. So I think they do all feed um, into each other either consciously or sometimes subconsciously. Mm. Is this something now at this stage in your life that you're the most passionate about? Music, writing music, probably. Uh, I still love, I love radio. I, I've always loved that. It's a, it's a wonderful medium. You can get extraordinary things done very quickly with very little interference from anybody else. Um, but I, I, I love writing music at the moment. But I, I think that in a way, this what you were talking about before is how to different understandings of different uh, mediums and different forms of artistic endeavour feed into each other. This, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies, is a good example of that from me because, you know, I wrote the book, I've written the script, the music, and I'm in it, um, which makes me sound like a megalomaniac. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's probably there's probably some truth in that. But um, it's combining lots of things I'm really passionate about um, together, but I think if it was one thing at the moment, it would be writing songs. Mm. And what inspired you to start writing books for kids? I had always wanted to be an author. So my house growing up was filled with books. Um, there was great respect for authors and for books in the house. And I just, I, I, I think that quite early on, I loved the idea of being able to hold something in your hand or put it on a bookshelf because a lot of artistic endeavour is very ethereal, very nebulous. You know, you come off from doing a stage production and you've got a wonderful feeling if, it, if it's been successful, but nothing really to hold. You can hold that in your heart, but you can't hold it in your hand, and sometimes that's nice to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So there was that, and also I had some time. I was looking after my daughter. She was about three when I started the first book, and I had some time when she was at childcare, uh, I, but I couldn't really do a full-time job, so I started writing. And eventually the, the idea got picked up by a publisher and then, then it got serious. But it was, it was a, a long-held desire to be an author and also um, opportunity. So it, in, if I was using a murder analogy, it would be motive and opportunity. Yeah. And you just mentioned that you grew up in a household with lots and lots of books. What types of books were you reading when you were a kid? Oh, God. Um, lo- a, lo- a lot of things. Um, because my father was self-taught, so he read almost everything. So I was reading kids' books. I, I really liked science fiction. I liked anything sort of detective There was a series called Encyclopedia Brown. Um, one of my fondest fantasies was to be really smart um, and recognised for being really smart, not beaten up for it. Um, and, oh, every ma- all manner of books... From Wilbur Smith through to um, Oswell's Diaries through to um, biographies 
and autobiographies of actors, lots of plays, lots of poetry. Um, theology, my both, I grew up in a very uh, strongly Roman Catholic household, so um, we were encouraged to um, investigate religion. So there was a, there was theological books. Um, there was all manner of things. There was books about music. There was you know untold volumes of Dickens and Shakespeare mm. and Chekhov and all manner of things like that. So you know I remember reading Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett at thirteen. Um, I had no idea what it was about, but I remember reading it. Um, so there were all, and there was always library books all over the place. Um, so yeah, it was it 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 set up a lifelong um, a lifelong Catholic small C Catholic tastes in both books and music. I I read very widely and listen very widely as well. How important do you think that is? For uh, for kids to be to be I mean reading and writing and rather than being what is now on on devices. Look, I saw a kid, a young kid in a pram with a phone in front of them, recently, because they were waiting. Them and their parent were waiting for something, and I think I found that distressing for a couple of reasons. It's probably not very good for the kid's developing brain, but also there is a aspect of life where you just need to be able to look around um, and you also need time to be bored uh, you know I, my daughter is she needs a lot of stimulation like you know mental stimulation but I'm very happy to say to her no I'm not going to you just need to sort something out for yourself um, within five minutes she's choreographing a dance routine to Taylor Swift <laughs> or have got, you know, some of her um, stuffed animals or her dolls or something like that, and, the, you know, they're having some sort of adventure or she's reading a book or she's making a cubby or something like that. So I think that's very important. As far as books go, I think one of the things that books does for children is they put them actually inside other people's heads and emotions. And kids reading a lot develops empathy. And there's, there's a number of studies about that. Um, and I certainly, from my own experience, feel that that's the case. You know, when you're entering into a, a character that someone else has written, someone very different to you, someone that you would never normally um, associate with or encounter, you can come to a, quite a deep understanding of that person, that character and their situation, you know, their mental situation, their spiritual situation, their emotional situation. I think that's very important for kids. And also it keeps them quiet. So that is not a bad thing either. No, not at all. Um, I just want to take a little detour before we come back to the creative writing process and, and Charlie. Um, and I really want to, I just wanted to sort of do a couple of questions about the TV show Spicks and Specs. There were seven seasons that you were yep. involved in. How do you know so much about music and its history? Look, um, it through osmosis. It's, it's genuinely true that I did not know how much I knew about music until they started asking me questions. It had wow. obviously just sat in there. I mean, look, there's an aspect of it that where music knowledge is currency, particularly when you're not listening to the prevailing sorts of music. So when I was at boarding school, I very early on, about 14, discovered 
punk and post-punk. And not a lot of guys were listening to that. They were listening to Journey and Nazareth and uh, Cold Chisel and ACDC. And I was listening to Joy Division and Crass and The Exploited and The Stooges and Near the Twain Shall Meet. Um, so in that respect, music knowledge is currency and it's the way that you find your people and it's the sort of shibboleths of the, the, the musical faith that you profess. Um, but also my father had very wide-ranging tastes, so did my mother, and there was always music on in the house and there was always talk about music and, you know, we were in musicals and we went to see musicals and with lots of different sorts of music. So I knew music was talked about and, and the understanding of music was important, not just the theory of it, but the history of it and, you know, the names, the dates, the places, the people. Mm. So, um, so that just, it, it, was, it was encouraged and it was just a thing that was around and so... As I got older and I was working in record stores, and you know, after boarding school where music was very important, and then I worked in record stores where knowing music was really important because people would come in and go, oh, I've been listening to this, what do I listen to now? And, you know, it's good to be able to give them some decent recommendation. So yeah. I think it was, it was, a, it was an, a process of osmosis that all came to a head when they first started asking me questions and I had to push the buzzer. And I told my mother about the show. I think she only ever saw it once. But I told my mother about the show and she said, oh, thank God all that silly stuff about music that you know will finally come in handy. <laughs> and it sounds like it's been not only like you, the books and the music were really wide variety of all different styles and genres, So, which later on in life form amazing links and you can bring them in at different parts of your life. Yeah, they do, yeah. yeah. So, yes, it is. It's... it's I was very blessed in the way that I was in the house that I was brought up in. Mm, mm. And Charlie, um, you mentioned before you've obviously been writing some songs at the moment for the production of Charlie and the War Against the Grannies. How have you brought that music um, passion that you have into the writing of the music and the lyrics for the show? Well, we, the, the music for this show is going to span a lot of different genres. Um, it, the first song has sort of got a 1940s or 1930s sort of hot jazz feel to it, a sort of Stefan Grafelli, um, Django Reinhardt vibe, right through to there's a sort of uh, northern soulish sort of slash the jam when they were becoming soulful um, song at the end. In between there's like a, a hard rocking sort of Ramonesy style thing. There's um, a torch song about farting. Um, there's, we, what we've tried to do is, is bring in a whole lot of different styles to keep kids interested and to also introduce them to different stuff. So I think having a knowledge of lots of different styles of music allows me to, when I'm writing, um, understand the form of them. And sometimes you just go, well, that form's going to be perfect. We'll just use that the way it is. Mm. But the more you understand form, the more you're able to subvert it or change it or um, manipulate it to your ends. So I think an understanding of, of mm, the internal workings of music and the genres of music have really helped. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing a new song? Yes. Um, well, in, it, it, with regards to Charlie, it's mainly you. we find a, an area in the show that where we think there could be a song um, or where we feel that 
narratively a song would be best. And then it's about working out exactly what that song is about, what the central message of the song needs to be. And then it sort of evolves. Sometimes the lyrics come out very quickly and it starts off lyrically. Sometimes there's a, uh, a musical um, a motif, um, a chord sequence, um, something I've hummed into my phone, um, and that's where it comes from. Well, sometimes the music and the lyrics evolve together, but you basically say, this is where we need a song, and um, this is what it needs to do, and then the, it will evolve from there. And sometimes the song goes in a completely different direction by the end of it than it did at the beginning. Um, but it's a lot about what the song needs to do, and that will often, narrative-wise, and that will often uh, give you an idea of what it needs to do musically. Do you think that your love of musicals growing up as a child, not only being in them, but also going to see them, has really informed um, how you're making the music for Charlie? Yes, in a lot of ways it has, and I think it's informed my ability to be able to identify good areas for music. Uh, so, so identify areas within the narrative that could really benefit from music. But also, yeah, I just I love I love stories with music in them, and I always have. And, and sometimes it's you know it can be really subtle, and suddenly you're in the middle of a song. And other times, I really just love sometimes in the in musicals where someone essentially just says, "I'm going to sing now," and then start singing. Uh, and I just like I, I love the form of musicals. So that certainly has informed this. Do you, did you always imagine that Charlie would be turned into a musical when you were writing it? No. No? <laughs> no. Uh, basically what happened is that I didn't have a lot to do uh, and I saw uh, Ama Harrington, who was the then head of uh, children and families programming at the Arts Centre Melbourne. Her kids uh, went to the same school as my daughter and I saw her in the playground and I said you read my book? And she said, no. And I said, I think it might make a good musical for kids. And she said, oh, well, give me a copy. So I gave her a copy. And she said, yeah, I think it would. And we were off. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so it was, I, I, to be honest, I don't know where the idea came from. I just, I think it might have been just born out of mm. uh, a lack of something else to do. <laughs> and a whole lifetime of really amazing influences. Yes, that too. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about the creative process that you go through when you're writing a new book? How do you start a new story? Where do you get your inspiration from for that idea? Um, Tricky. There I, yeah, the, the, two, the two books that I've written, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies and Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches, have both been from ideas that have just been sitting in my head, they've probably been written down in some form, but they were the granny's idea was here, yeah, a, a group of kids who went to war with a, a group of nasty grannies to get a paper round and that was, I don't know it came from wondering whether kids did paper rounds anymore and then seeing a grandmother delivering uh, supermarket flyers, you know, catalogues one afternoon with her you know, shopping 
trundler pushing it along full of those. And those those things just came together. So they're often ideas that have just been sitting in my head for quite a long time. And those are often... For instance, I don't know where the idea of karaoke singing cockroaches came from. <laughs> I think I've been watching quite a few kids' films with my daughter. And I just thought, you know, cockroaches don't get much play. And I thought the idea of having something based around cockroaches and then some reason cockroaches that could sing um, just came to me. So I I don't know where the ideas initially come from often, but they just sit in my head and they they slowly mature or mm. immature depending on, you know, what sort of form they're gonna be in. And something they they come to be of use. Do you map the whole story out or do you you know, you know what's going to happen chapter by chapter or do you start writing and just see where it takes you? I do a little bit of both. I sort of have a reasonable idea of where the... Often I know what the beginning is and I know what the end is. So, for instance, in Charlie and the War Against the Grannies, I knew that he wanted to get a paper round and he couldn't and I knew that there would be a war at the end. (laughs) And I didn't know a lot else. And so I often find that even if you have planned things very carefully, which I did say with the musical, when you're writing, lots of things come up just unbidden through the simple mechanical process of, you know, the brain to get words onto a page. Mm. So I do, I try and prepare, I've learnt a lot more about narrative over writing the books in particular, over turning the first book into, over the process of turning the first book into a music. Mm. So I, um, I, I planned a lot more of the, the way to make the story work on stage, but often I just go off in a straight line and see what happens, and then the line, you know, gets very quickly bent out of shape. And you just mentioned about the actual getting words onto the page. What do you have any tips about how to deal with write, what we call writer's block, about being not able to get the words on the page? Um, well, I think that is one of the. I think that's one of the problems about writer's block is you, you think oh, I can't get the words down on the page, and therefore you're not getting the words down on the page. And look, I don't always. I've read quite a bit about this sort of stuff, and I don't always practice what I preach. Often, I just fall into a dreadful lethargy and just basically lie on the floor in front of my desk moaning. But I believe that if you were like not inclined to do that, what you do is you've just got to basically sit down. You give your, If you've got a word count, like a lot of people um, have a word count for each day, if you've got a word count, then sit down and write your 500, 750, 2,000 words, whatever it is, and just write them. And just go from your, where you are in the story and just write. And mm. you'll probably think it's pretty awful. And But don't... I, think, I believe one of the keys is you don't read it straight after you have written it. You leave it till that night or the next morning and then you read it. And often it is not as bad as you thought at first. Uh, a caveat, sometimes it's worse. <laughs> How, how long does it take you to, to write a book then? It took me 
about 18 months to write the first one. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, there were, there's long periods where I find it very, very hard. And, um, and then periods where I find it very enjoyable. I like rewriting because I like being able to make something really get down to the finer points of why something isn't working and make it better, you know, polish up the jokes, make the dialogue flow and, and sing um, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And with, with jokes, how much does your love of comedy shape the stories? Is it important for you to have humour in your books? Yeah, very much so. I, I think it is essential, and I mean essential in it is an essence of my being, Comedy is, an, is essential to my being. So I couldn't really imagine something that some sort of artistic endeavour that I was involved in that didn't involve, didn't include some comedic elements. Mm. So I think, yeah, it, it's, it's important to the work that I do because it's deeply important to me, comedy. yeah. yeah. It's in, it's in your bones. <laughs> it really is in my bones. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I like I like being able to make people laugh. I feel that it is um, a real it is a real gift to be able to make people laugh. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, with the the themes that you're looking at, what 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 do you love exploring in your stories? One of the things I I like is things underneath the surface. Hmm. So things that are hidden from the majority of people that you are only exposed to because of some event that has occurred to you. Mm. There's, a, you know, there's an underground sort of community of people in the book called the Us, um, which are sort of society's outcasts who live underground. Um, they have a, you know, they, it's like a, it's like an office where they get lots of things done. You know, they release smells in the city. You don't know where they come from. Delicious smells. I don't know whether you've had that experience. It's a thing that's happened to me before where I've walked, been walking through the city and I've smelt something amazing, but I've got no idea where it could have come from. Yeah. So the us do things like that. They put little things down to a particular height so that only kids in wheelchairs can see them. Fantastic. Like little toys or little, you know, signs. Um, and I like, I like the idea of things that the majority of people will never know about or witness. Do you think it's part of that um, paying, paying attention, you know, getting your head out of your phone when you're walking around and paying attention? I remember someone saying, you know, look up, how often we don't look up at the tops of the buildings yep. um, and just being really conscious and aware of what's going on and noticing the little things. Yes, yeah, very much so. And I think that is something that distresses me about devices. I mean, I, I was uh, looking at my window a, a couple of months ago and I saw a young man walking by and he was staring up in the air. And it just occurred to me I hadn't seen someone staring into space for such a long time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it is about noticing the little things and I think that it, it's, it's really wonderful 
and all those small things that are around and then just what if there was something bigger behind them? Well, it's interesting because the character of Charlie and Charlie in the War Against the Grannies, you've labelled him a digital orphan. Yep. So is that something that you'd heard before or is something that, that a title that you've, you've made up in these books? Um, yeah, I think I, I, I did a search, a relatively thorough search for the term digital orphan and I couldn't find it in relation to a person. Um, yeah, I was reading... When I started writing the book, I was reading David Copperfield. <laughs> um, and I, I thought, oh, Charlie should be an orphan. How am I going to make him an... You know, being an orphan is, it does make things difficult. It does give you that freedom. But just how I couldn't work out narratively how to place it and what happened to his parents and who does he live with, etc., etc. Then I came up with this idea. I don't know where... Oh, no, I do know where it came from. I was at the park with my daughter and I was pushing her on the swing and there was a, another father pushing his daughter on, on a swing. But he was looking at his phone at the same time as pushing her. Yep. And so he was basically staring very intently at his phone and then managing to push her every time she came back towards him, apart from one time where he just didn't realise and just got completely sconed <laughs> and plummeted down to the tan bark. <laughs> and I shouldn't have laughed, but I did. And from that, I, the idea of him being a digital orphan um, emerged. And, yeah, I'm very... It, it's really interesting that kids come up to me and say, oh, I'm a digital orphan. Mm. And parents come up to me and say, well, my kid just called themselves a digital orphan. You know, you've, you've made them think that. And I have, I've had to say to parents, well, I don't know if I made them think that. I just gave them a term for what they were experiencing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, 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 it has created discussion among people and it certainly resonated with a lot of people. Mm, mm. Um, and I didn't do it for any political reasons. Well, it's good just for people to, um, to be aware, yeah. maybe just to... Yeah, <laughs> and to yeah, find yeah. out what we actually mean by a digital orphan, you're going to have to read the book. <laughs> yeah. um, I just want to talk a little bit about um, literary devices that you use. So this is something that's actually really common, well, not only in a lot of kids' books, but also in Shakespeare, where there's lists of things and also the asides where the character talks directly to the audience in a side story. Can you explain the use of those? Well, the list. I've always liked a list, uh, but also they were a good way of getting extra jokes in. Um, so one of the first lists you come upon in the book is Charlie's talking about his parents and he talks about his dad who loves farting and farts and knew how to say fart in a number of different languages because he would just ask people if they were from different countries and then ask them how they said fart in their country. And so the first list you come upon is Ten ways of saying fart in uh, other languages that aren't English, and so it's just it, it it allows you to sort of break out and have jokes, um, boldly stated jokes, or add something into the narrative that um, that you don't have to read straight away. You can go back to if you're just sort of running with the story, and 
but yeah, I just it, genuinely it was a way of getting lots of jokes in, and I'd be come up to a bit in the story, and I'd be writing it and go, oh, I could put a list here, or I could uh, have an aside here. Mm. So that it, it it served a practical purpose, but I do love lists. I think lists can be really funny. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, this might be a good time to actually read a chapter of Charlie, if you don't mind. And the war no, against I don't Spanish, mind do at mind? all. Um, I, I, should have, I should have taken it down from the shelf, but um, it's right near me, and so there will not be too much fluffing about. Um, and, well, I'll read chapter 10, shall I? Fantastic. Uh, which is called The Grannies. And so Charlie... Uh, Charlie's been trying to get a paper round and he uh, has gone to the newsagent and the newsagent, as soon as Charlie asked about getting a paper round, the newsagent freaked out, screamed and ran away. So um, Charlie decides that he's going to wait to see who delivers his newspapers and then he's going to politely ask them whether they could tell him how to get a paper round. So it's 5am and he's waiting behind his letterbox and down the road on the corner is his best friend Hills uh, and she is similarly almost 12, uh, like Charlie, and she is very staunch, Hills. She wants to join the army and so she acts and talks like she's already in the army, like she says um, affirmative instead of yes and negative instead of no. And she likes blowing up things and shouting orders and organising ambushes. So, and this is Chapter 10, The Grannies. There they were, about ten paces away from me, coming in at nine o'clock. Two grannies. The first was a regular short granny. She was small and lumpy, like a potato with legs. She had thin grey hair that sat like mist on her head. She wore a purple tracksuit decorated with big blue flowers. The only non-regular granny thing about her was her neck. She had the wrinkliest neck I had ever seen. It looked like she'd stolen the wrinkles from lots of other old wrinkly people and stuck them all onto her own neck with special wrinkle-enhancing glue. Walking beside her was a regular tall granny. She was long and thin, like a French fry with legs. She had big, thick glasses that made her eyes look bulgy. She wore a green-knitted cardigan with fluffy white sheep all over it. The not-regular granny thing about her was her really very super bright lipstick. She had some deep cracks in the skin on her face, which ran from her upper lip to her nose and from her lower lip down to her chin. Those cracks had filled up with her bright red lipstick and it looked like her lips were slowly exploding. They were walking straight towards me. I was starting to feel a bit more than a bit nervous about talking to these grannies. A lot more than a bit. Don't worry, I said to myself, they are grannies. They're nice. From somewhere inside her purple tracksuit, the small granny pulled a tightly rolled up newspaper. She handed it to the tall granny, who put it in our box. Good morning, I said. Neither granny replied. It was very early. Maybe they weren't morning people. My name is Charlie Ian Duncan. I see that you deliver my paper. Nice to meet you. 
both the grannies stopped delivering the newspapers and stared at me. Uh, I'm sorry to have stopped you in the middle of your paper round, but I was wondering, since you obviously have a paper round, if you knew who I might talk to if I wanted to get a paper round. Keep staring at me. Silently staring at me. I don't know what to say. What do grannies like to talk about? I had an idea. I once saw a zebra fight a giraffe, I said. I think it was over some hay, but perhaps they just didn't like each other. Keep staring. Silently. I'd like to talk about zebras fighting giraffes. Good to know. Then the tall granny pulled something out from under her green sheep-covered cardigan. It wasn't a newspaper, so I presumed it was a card with the name of the person I should talk to if I wanted a paper round. I was wrong. It wasn't the name of the person I should talk to if I wanted a paper round. It was really very super not the name of the person I should talk to if I wanted a paper round. It was a gun! The tall, skinny granny was pointing it at me! Even though no one had ever pointed a gun at me before, especially a granny, I knew exactly what to do. I panicked! Then I tried to run away, but I couldn't run away. I just stood there. The running away part of me was so busy panicking that it had forgotten how to run away. Then the tall, skinny granny squeezed the trigger of the gun. Bang! Fantastic. Um, And you're going to have to read the book to find out what happens. <laughs> Thanks for reading that. So nice to hear the author actually reading their own work. So it's a bit of a bit of a special moment for everyone to oh, hear that. Right. Uh, so I wanted to talk about what is now. We're, so obviously, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies is a book. What is the process of turning that book into a play? Well, it's working out the central parts of the story, um, and bits that we have to tell to get the story told. Uh, And then it's about plucking all those out and forming a narrative. Sometimes the narrative changes quite a bit because trying to... Telling a story in a book and telling a story on stage are uh, are different ways of telling stories and therefore need different uh, aspects of the story often. And then it's about working out what else you can add, what adds to the story, what adds colour to the story, and in this instance, what opportunities uh, you can find within the narrative for songs. Essentially, it's about putting it all back together and making sure that it flows and making sure that you know there's, it keeps people um, gripped and on pushing through because we, you know, you know there's going to be a war because it's called Charlie and the War mm. Against the Grannies. So essentially it's about servicing that and knowing that there's a war so making sure that we get there with lots of energy and we, we know the reason there's a war and we, we, have, we have our heroes and heroines in the war and we want them to win and we're behind them so that the stakes get higher and higher and higher and by the end there's a really satisfactory, satisfactory both narrative and emotional conclusion for the audience. Mm, what, was there anything that surprised you while you've been doing this adaptation? Um, I think I looked at the book in a different way and I, I would probably write it differently now. And I think that I, when I stripped it back, I think because the book, is, it, it just felt so, like such a large undertaking that it's covered with layers and layers and layers of things. The, the you know the, the 
bedrock of the story. And I think I sort of got lost sight of that a little bit. So those surprises as disappointments. Yeah, um, which but- is really interesting because it's going back to what you mentioned at the top of um, the conversation, which is, you know, so often when you're when you're acting or a lot or dancing music, a lot of those things disappear once the act has happened and that going into this of writing a book, it's there and it exists. Um, and that would be quite a different learning about how to know when to stop and then to just go, it exists in that form right now and that's where I have to leave it. And then not not sort of um, beating yourself up, yourself up about it later on when you go, oh, I could have done that, I could have done that. It would be a, a big lesson to learn, I imagine. Yes, finishing is very hard. <laughs> yeah. And I had read that and I didn't even know really what it meant. And then when it came time to, you know, I was obsessively tinkering with the book and then my editor just said, stop. It needs to go to the publishers, mm. the printers. And I went, okay. And I remember the day I knew that it was being sent that morning to the printers. I, it was the most difficult point, I think, for the, in the whole process. You really got to let go, don't you? Yeah, you do, yeah. because that's it. It's going to be going to be written down. Yeah. It's going to be printed. It's going to be bound. It's going to have a cover. All of those things. And mm. then, yeah. I mean, you know, lots of authors talk about going, they can't go into bookshops because if they see their own work, they'll just want to take the books down and start writing notes in the margin for readers going, look, this isn't a good bit. This is how I would have done it now. Um, so it was really nice that I got to revisit the book and try and, and fix up some of the narrative mistakes I thought I'd made. Well, the the other thing is is that you're playing the title character of Charlie in the stage uh, show. So do you feel like that's an opportunity now for you to put all those extra layers in that maybe you you go, I could do that now, that you actually get to bring Charlie to life in a, in a three-dimensional way? Yeah, it is. It, it's interesting because I've been thinking about that because I've been thinking a lot about the, the way that he moves and, you know, his physical characteristics and stuff like that. That and I, and it's it it's fascinating because there's a lot of me in Charlie, and but now yeah now I need to differentiate him. I need to I need to find the similarities between Charlie and I, and then I need to find the differences, and I need to balance those two things. So it is it is a fascinating challenge bringing him to life because he's been in my head for such a long time. Mm. But now I have to take all those thoughts and all those connections that I know exist between me and him and make him into a a thoroughly believable and engaging central character of a story, a person that people need to, or I hope, will really love and get behind, like I was mentioning before. And so yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting and challenging process at the moment to find who he is physically, yeah. particularly, and yeah. from that, a lot of other things you know, that will give emphasis to the. the, the and emotional aspects of his character. Well, because, I mean, obviously you're playing a 12-year-old 
in yeah. in the play. How how do you go back into? I mean, that physicality is obviously very different, but how do you go back into that um, mindset uh, as as an actor playing someone who's obviously a lot younger than you? I am relatively. I'm blessed with a relatively easy access to my childhood self. Um, there is a lot of residual child hmm. in me, and um, I. So I, I can connect to that, and I connected to that through the book as well, because it's written in the first person, and I, I very much found my in a 12-year-old pretty quickly. So, yeah, I I think because there was a lot of... The more I, more I went on with the writing of the book, the more bits and pieces of my... Um, of the way that I thought as a 12-year-old, the way that I acted, the things that were um, important to me, the things that scared me, the things I was excited by, started to come back to me and... I sort of folded those into Charlie's character. So a lot of the things, the things that he says and a lot of the things that he finds important or, as I said, scary, uh, come directly from me. So finding my way back into my way that I thought and the way that I interacted with the world as a 12-year-old is not all that hard. Yeah, that's that keeps you young. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your your career, um, and this is really just to give uh, the kids that are listening an idea about where life can take you. Do you have a standout a standout moment in your career? finished Specs and Specs, we went on a tour and we played really big. We did a live version of the show, so we got people out of the audience and they were competitors and we, it was great fun and we played big venues. We played the Horden Pavilion, we played the Adelaide Entertainment Centre, you know, we played a place called the Plenary in Melbourne, which seats five and a half thousand people. And we did four shows at the Plenary to finish off the tour. And the five and a half thousand people in each, it was sold out four nights in a row. And I think on the last night we were standing on stage, Adam, Miss, and myself. And it was just, it was a really interesting experience to. For it to be so concrete how much people had loved the show, like the television show, and how people had really got into it. So I think as far as um, an extraordinary reaction to something that I had done, mm -hmm. that's, that's a highlight. Um, well, it's that strange thing that you're in people's living rooms, in their homes while you know, they're wrapping up dinner or whatever it is up that evening, like you're, you've are you been in there quite often. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I ha Oh, yeah. And it's really, it was, it, it's it's quite an odd, it's quite an odd thing. Um, 
that you know we yeah we we were in people's living rooms for a long long time. In fact, we still are. It's on every night. Yeah. Okay, so the other side of that, I guess, is there's highlights, but how do you deal with the other side of that, which may be criticism? Well, look, I, I'm not very good at dealing with criticism. I, I am very thin-skinned. Um, I think I'm good at dealing with constructive criticism. Me too, you know, so because when you're... Because I grew up on stage, doing stage work, you're, you're being directed. So you're constantly being told about your work, whether you're doing it right, whether you're standing in the right place, whether you're in your light. But I find, so I'm not involved in any social media because I find that people tend to, they don't understand the weight that their words have. They just tap their keyboard or their phone and they push send Mm. and then it's done. And I don't, I think a lot of people would genuinely want to take back many of the things that they might have tweeted or posted on Facebook or sent in emails um, because it's done in haste, because it's so immediate. Wow. Um, I, I, don't, I don't interact with any online stuff about what I do. I just do it. I know you said before that you don't think you're the best person to be giving that advice, but what is the best advice that you've ever received? My father, the best advice I've ever received about performing was my father said to me, acting is very simple. He said, you just have to listen to the audience and listen to the other actors. Now, what he didn't tell me was that is, it's very, those are very simple things things to say, but they're very, very hard to do. Mm. But that was the best advice I ever got, because if you are listening to the audience, then you, you know, you're understanding where they're coming from, you know, you know whether they're with you or not, and so you can start to uh, mould your performance Mm. in some ways to to bring them in. If you're listening to the other actors, it's always going to be fresh. Because people never do things exactly the same way every time. And if you are listening to what the other performers have given you and you're reacting to that, then there's going to be little points of difference that are going to spark every performance into life. Mm. And they might be only really little things, but they're going to keep you listening. They're going to keep the other actors listening. And when you're creating, when, when you're acting as a conversation with other people that's just happening in that moment, the audience are always going to be engaged. And it's about that being in the moment, isn't it? Being present and observing, going back to, you know, looking up and looking around and seeing what you notice. Very much so, yes, about Mm. being present and about, you're right, being in the moment and about Mm. if, if you're totally focusing on listening to the other characters, even if you're not meant to be, even if you're meant to be ignoring them, you know, as... You're still doing acting, even if you've got your back to them and you don't want to be listening to them. Listening to the other actors, you're reacting. You're you're living in that moment and the audience are living in that moment with you. Are you writing anything at the moment? No, we're just finishing up this. Myself and Casey Benito, who he wrote Keating the Musical. Oh, yeah. Uh, We started a band in 2015 called The Norrells and we haven't done much for a while, so... He popped around and said, shall we write some more songs? So after this is sort of over, 
we'll probably do that. And I have got an idea for another book, but um, I'll just I have to sit myself down yeah. and do that. But this is this is the most important thing at the moment. So we start rehearsals in a week, and then you know we're we're straight into it, and we just keep on going once we open. So it's very exciting, but it's it's one of those things where this period, the, the last few weeks have been very difficult because I can't really do anything. It's You feel a bit powerless. Once you're in the rehearsal room, you can at least be changing things. You're with all the other um, people who are making mm. the work and things are happening. But just at the moment, it's a bit, um, oh, okay, come on, let's get things rolling. Get the show so, on the road. Yeah. yeah. So look, I, I once this is up and running, I, I find that when I am busy, I get a lot of other things done. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully out of that busyness will come the next thing that I'll do. We're actually almost at the end. I've got one last question for you. Okay. What would you say to kids who are interested in pursuing a career in the arts, whether that be music, dance, writing, acting? I would say to them that you know how much you want to do it. Don't let anyone else tell you whether you want to or not. My father was an actor, but he didn't want me to become an actor. And in fact, got someone in specifically, a television producing friend of his, came and had a talk with me telling me there wasn't any money in it. <laughs> I said, I don't want to, I'm not doing it for the money doing it because I want to do it. And I think that's the thing. You know, and I think you need to do it because you want to do it, and don't let anyone else tell you whether to do it or not. It is a very personal thing. It can be very difficult to do all your life, um, but you know whether you're sure or not, mm. and you're the person you should listen to. Take advice like on how to, you know, how to do things and where you might go. But as far as, it's a vocation. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking to us and sharing all the amazing stories about how you've gotten to where you are and your childhood and uh, all the wonderful stories about your career and where you've been. And have a fantastic rehearsal process and chookers for the opening night of the play in a few weeks. Thank you. Uh, it's been. It, thank you for having me on. It's it's lovely to be able to talk about all this stuff. And yes, I can't. I, I uh, cannot wait to re to rehearse, and I cannot wait to get it. We've got a couple of schools preview, so they bring kids in from school. So I think that it's going to be pretty full, and it will be really lovely slash the most terrifying experience of my life to put it in front of an, at the actual audience it was designed for. So I'm very excited slash petrified. <laughs> uh, well, Sydney listeners, head to the Sydney Opera House website to book tickets to see Alan in Charlie and the War Against the Grannies in the April school holidays. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, man. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to Artie Farty wherever you get your podcast from.